over the last several Sundays. In fact, this is our final study in the book of Acts for the moment. We will return to it next year, starting chapter 21, and work our way through next fall up to Thanksgiving, and we'll come to chapter 28. But from chapter 11 to chapter 20 that we're about to read, over these last 11 weeks, we have come a long way, and we've learned a great deal. We've journeyed with the Apostle Paul into some of the strategic cities of Asia Minor and over into Europe. We've watched the gospel impact individuals and families and communities. And today we're coming to Acts 20, as you know, where Paul says farewell to the Ephesian elders. So I want to read verse 22 first, and then we'll come back to verse 32. So if you can turn back a page or so, Acts 20, we're turning to verse 22. The Apostle Paul, as you know, is chatting with the Ephesian elders. He's saying farewell, and he then says these words. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race, complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. And then to verse 32. Now, I commit you to God and the word of His grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words The Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. That grieved them most was his statement that they would never see him again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. A long, long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. I was 16 years old. Now, that will come to some of you as a little shock because you were convinced I was born age 48 as a Presbyterian minister. I wasn't. But at age 16, I learned to play the guitar. And when I was 16, I learned three chords. In the last 40 years, I've learned to play three more chords. And so I have a total of six at my fingertips, which means I can play two songs in total. C, G, D, E, E minor, F, B flat, maybe, D minor, maybe. I'm the world's worst guitarist. That is a deep and settled conviction in my mind, and those who have heard me play immediately agree, and that is certainly the case. But what I discovered early on was that if I was playing at an event somewhere, and I arrived about 40 minutes before the concert started, I would get out my guitar, and these were in the days before digital tuners. 
Musicians, you don't know how easy you have it these days with digital tuners. I had to tune by ear. In other words, you set your note and you tuned every other string accordingly. But the difficulty was, and musicians, you will know this, that when you are preparing for a concert, there are sound engineers up on the platform area, and they are doing things like audio check, audio check, one, two, three, four, and looking at the back, a little louder, can you lift, and all of that is going on. Then you have other instrumentalists tuning, and there is a cacophony of noise. And I'm over here at one side trying to tune my guitar. And what I discovered was this, that if I stepped a couple of feet away from the edge of the platform and got my head as close to the body of my guitar as I possibly could, the rest of the ambient sound disappeared. And I could hear quite clearly the notes. And that has stuck in my mind all these years. That on Sunday mornings when we come and open up God's word together. We try and tune out all of the distractions, the busyness of this past week, things we're doing later today, plans for this coming week. We try to empty our minds of places we've been, things we've heard, in order to focus on Him alone. And the dominant question in our study this morning, as Paul is saying farewell to the Ephesian elders, begins right there in verse 22 when he says, compelled by the Spirit. Now what does he mean, compelled by the Spirit? How does he know the Spirit of God is leading him in this direction and not in that direction? How can he be sure? How does he know it's not just wishful thinking in his own mind? Eight years have passed since Acts chapter 11. We've learned a great deal. My trust and prayer this morning for us that we will learn one more lesson that will equip and then enable us to live out our faith in the coming week. We recognize here at First Pres it is one thing to open up the Scriptures and study it, to look for explanation and understanding, definition. But we don't do so for the sake of information. We do so on the basis that what we read and learn will so impact our souls, it brings not just information, but in fact, transformation. And that's where we're heading in our study this morning. And Paul begins, and now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. How do you know the will of God? How can you be sure of his purposes? Maybe you have children or maybe grandchildren who are in their mid-teens. They're thinking of college. And they're asking the big questions. Which college should I attend? Which course should I take? How will this prepare me for a working environment? How will it shape me for the rest of my days? Those are big questions when you're in your teens. Major decisions to be made. 
And how do you know God is leading you in a particular direction rather than in this direction? What happens if you're looking for promotion at work and a job has come up? It's the perfect job. It's a job you would give your right arm for. It's an increase in salary. It's a job you can do, one you've been training for. It is in every sense. It feels tailor-made for you. And the only difficulty is this, the jobs in Denver, Colorado. And that means you have to leave family, home, move to a part of the country you've never lived in before. How can you be sure this is God's perfect will for you? Is that where he's leading you? What do you do when you've discovered you've fallen in love? It's become serious. Are you ready to take the next step? What will that involve? Is this the one for you? Is this the person? How do you know? How can you be certain? The voice of God is at times difficult to discern. Some days it's crystal clear. It's unmistakable. Not always. Remember the story of Moses? A classical education under the pharaohs of Egypt. Fluent probably in several languages. Mathematics, science, astronomy. And in a fit of rage, Moses murders a man, takes someone else's life. How do you recover from that? How do you begin to get your life back? And for the next 40 years, Moses, having had to flee Egypt, go to the far side of the desert, was looking after sheep. And incidentally, they weren't his sheep. They were his father-in-law's. Talk about a self-made man. That wasn't Moses at that point. Right out of the blue. No dream the night before. No writing in the sky. A burning bush calls Moses. Moses. God was speaking. Towards the end of Moses' life, Moses became so acquainted with God himself. His life was described in these terms. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Wow! Can you imagine that? Sitting down with the Lord God Almighty in all of his wonder and glory, speaking to you and asking, how has your day been? Genuinely interested in every part of your life, your hopes, your dreams, your ambitions, your desires. Having that deep abiding conversation. Some days his voice is clear. Not always. Isaiah the prophet wrote these words. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. 
What is Isaiah saying? He's saying this. He's saying that God has you in the palm of his hands. And when you are uncertain about your future, you're fearful for stepping out, you can trust him. He's got you. You can trust him. Just between us, when it comes to the guidance of God, I am a coward. I'm just a big chicken. Sometimes I am fearful. I don't know what to do. Do I step out in faith? Do I hold back? What do you do? And then I come across passages like this, which say, when you are uncertain, you may never get a passage in the Scriptures that says for First and Second Timothy or Thessalonica, take the job in Denver. You're not going to find that in the text. You're not going to find it says, she is the one. Helen is the one. Marry her. It's not there. But what the Scripture teaches us to do is this, that in the midst of significant major decisions, when we are wrestling about our future and asking God to lead and guide and direct us, we can trust him. We can trust him. Why? Because his promise is clear. Whether you turn to the right or whether you turn to the left, your ears will hear a voice saying, this is the way, walk in it because he's going to walk right alongside you. Right alongside you. He's going to be there. And how can we be certain? Well, sometimes he speaks to us in the circumstances of our lives. Something comes our way that we think is just unmissable. Sometimes friends, family members, those we love will give us good guidance. It's not a bad thing. But the other is this. We live in a 21st century world dominated by smartphones and emails, instant messaging, texting. This past Friday, I looked back over my week and started to look at emails that I hadn't got around to respond to. And on an average day, I get 60 emails or thereabouts. None of them are unwanted. None of them are trash. These are good emails from staff members, elders, deacons. I think back 35, 40 years, if I had come home from work and pressed the answering machine and it said, you have 65 messages. Good night. But now it's just part and parcel of everyday life. And if we're not looking at our phone every 15 minutes, we're having withdrawal symptoms and thinking, someone must need me somewhere, surely. Someone wants to speak to me or send me a message. And we get a little antsy and what is... There are moments in our lives when all of the distraction, all of the cacophony of noise, all that is going on, we need to leave to one side And go to that place alone with the Lord and be in prayer. Especially if you're needing guidance on major life issues. 
It's almost as if you are back again to retuning that instrument and getting your ear as close to the sound as possible and prayerfully saying, Father, show me the way. Teach me. Guide me. Lead me. Help me understand where you are taking me. Because in the midst of that frantic pace of life, we get to the point where we are unable to discriminate between the essential and the non-essential. We are in risk of being overwhelmed, overscheduled, unable to discern what God is saying, exhausting our energies, losing our perspective. In fact, in Psalm 46, verse 10, we read these words. Be still and know that I am God. There's every possibility. If we are running so fast, we can't hear him speak. We're going to be in trouble. God will not always shout. He'll not always get our attention. But sometimes he speaks to us quietly. Almost in a whisper, just nudging us, showing us the way forward. And if we're not tuning our ear in day by day in prayer, how do we know? How can we be certain? When the Apostle Paul says his last few words to the folks in Ephesus, this is what he says. Look at verse 32. And he says, now I commit you to God, to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Let me pause for a second and begin to explain what's going on here. Think of all the things Paul could have said to the folks in Ephesus. He knew them by name. He dined in their homes. They had been involved in establishing a young congregation, reaching out with the gospel, impacting individuals, society, and in fact, the whole city. Now he was leaving. Of all the things he could have said, he says, now I commit you to God and the word of his grace. What does he mean by that? He means this, the grace of the gospel. That's where you find your foundation. That's where you find your joy. That's where real contentment is found. Take time and spend it there. Refreshing, renewing yourself. Allow yourself to be overwhelmed again by his love and his grace and his goodness. That's what he's saying. And when tough days come and you're a little disappointed or tough days come and you've disappointed someone else or you have quite simply sinned and it's been a disaster and you don't know what to do next, turn back to him and allow him to wrap his arms of love and grace around you and begin again. That's what he's saying. Now I commit you to the words of his grace. And notice what he adds, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now, you may be sitting there saying, Richard, I've followed you so far. I think I've got the sense of slow down, 
prayer, spend time with the Lord, genuinely engage with Him. Don't do this in a casual manner. All of that I've got. But sanctified? What on earth is sanctified? It means growing in your faith. It means deep, abiding intimacy with God. It means looking at areas of your life that need to change and allowing the Spirit of God to get your attention and begin to mold and shape and fashion you in the hope that you will be more Christ-like day by day by day. That's what sanctification means. It's a lifelong process of becoming more Christ-like. This past week, I came across this article, and I was so touched by it, I thought I would share it with you this morning. Last December, 400 musicians gathered in Philadelphia to perform a symphony entitled, A Symphony for a Broken Orchestra. The orchestra included amateurs, professionals, even members of the Philadelphia Orchestra. The youngest performer was a nine-year-old cellist, the oldest an 82-year-old lady who played the oboe. The musicians brought with them broken instruments, a trumpet held together with duct tape, a violin with no A-string, a bow that had lost most of its hair. As the symphony began, many of the instruments were silent, but gradually they found their voice. While a trumpet might not be as capable as it once was, the keys could tap a rhythm. The scraping of a bow over the silhouette of a violin body added an unusual sound. At one point, a celloist contributed by turning a stringless peg. As the 40-minute symphony progressed, each instrument played its part. Some musicians struggled like the clarinetist who could only get out a short spurt of a sound and a French horn player who kept losing his mouthpiece. But together, the orchestra produced a rich harmony. The music was playful and joyous. As the performance came to an end, each section bowed out one by one by one until all that remained was the humble squeak of a broken clarinet. God is not looking for perfect instruments. He's looking for ordinary, everyday instruments who sometimes make an uncertain sound, who are broken, who can toot sometimes and other times don't, unreliable, unfaithful, folks who get it wrong. And when he begins to put his arms of love and grace around us and shape us and mold us and brings us through that sanctification process, what you can be sure of is this, that when we try and get our head as close to that instrument as possible in order to tune that guitar, what happens is this. We listen to the voice of God, tuning in our own ear only to discover 
that he is recalibrating and retuning our deepest affections and is drawing us to himself, taking us to that deeper, more committed level where our joy is found in him. When Paul says, now I commit you to the word of his grace, you can be sure that whatever decisions lie ahead, he's got you. He's not going to abandon you. He's not going to walk away from you. And if he is calling you to Denver, Colorado, in his sovereign purposes, that's exactly where you'll be. If he's calling you to marry the person you've fallen in love with, you can trust him. If you are looking for a college for your grandchild, what is your single biggest prayer? that they'll get into this college or get onto that course? No. Your single greatest prayer is this. Father, let them walk with you. And you can leave the rest to him. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your challenge to us this morning. And thank you for the reassuring words that there are days in our lives when you call us to be still and to enjoy your presence, to heed your word and to sense your leading and guiding. Father, bless us please in all the days to come as we commit ourselves to you and the wonders of your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.